0: Welcome once again to Fork in the Road, where we talk to the leaders in sports, business and entertainment about their journeys, resilience, success, and ultimately their fork in the road moment. Now, I am, uh, everyone knows out there, I'm very passionate about my golf, but to be able to have this guest today, I am like a little kid. I hope you're as excited as everyone else out there. He really does carry the flag for Australian golf overseas. He's a part of the CBS team which when we watch the Masters and all these major voice uh, tournaments, it's great to hear an Aussie voice and great to hear one in this guy. He's a British Open champion and also one of the best blokes you'll meet on the face of the planet. Welcome, Ian Baker Finch.
1: Thanks very much, Corey. It's a very nice intro. Lovely to be with you, mate.
0: Yes, I'm uh, actually, and I'm not far from uh, where you grew up, mate. I'm on the sunny coast now where... Not only around the corner that you actually grew up in Biwa, so I think Biwa for people that um, probably these days that's that was and where the, the crocodile hunter, where it's only just mm-hmm. the corner. Yeah, exactly
1: right. He he went to Lansborough Primary School, Steve Irwin. I went to Peachester, which was about six miles up the road, and uh, now the the you know the Australia Zoo, as you know it, a butts. Yep. Uh, the property where the Beale Golf Club uh, still remains, 18-hole course that my dad and a lot of the farmers in the area built back in the 60s. So, yeah, it's a great area. As you know, I come home there every year to the sunny coast. I, I play up at Twin Waters and a lot of the other courses in the area when I'm back. And not not able to uh, plan a trip to get back this year yet, unfortunately. I'm hoping by November we can uh, I can make it home again.
0: Yeah, no, it's been... I mean, obviously, uh, an interesting time. How have you utilised the time during the, the, the pandemic? I suppose you can, from a mindset point of view, you can approach it one or two ways, but how have, how have you approached and been able to utilise the time effectively? The, the best thing for me has been to be home
1: with Jenny uh, here in Florida for the last four months. Yep. Um, we've, we flew back from, uh, I've got to show you this, I can put this up to the screen. On the 17th of February, this little baby was born. And uh, we got back that day just in time for the birth. And we've been able to spend four months with my daughter, Hayley, and her husband, Jake, and little baby, Eloise. So it's been great for Jenny and I to actually really have a different sort of family life than what we've had for the last 40 years, you know,
0: traveling every week. Yeah, I think that yeah, as you mentioned, like when you obviously being in golf where you're you're travelling so much, it's I think that's the way everyone has probably came out of the pandemic that yeah, you can actually stop and and value the time with families and and take a breath for five minutes. Yeah, exactly, and and because of uh, wanting to go visit Eloise and
1: and Haley and Jake, um, and stay in touch with a couple of friends, and we've we've taking it pretty seriously. You know, we we change clothes, we'd shower three times a day, we're changing all the time. We're very cautious with how we uh, travel around. If we go out anywhere at all, we've got the mask on. So we're fortunate that Hayley's only four miles away. We didn't need to go out of our own town to go visit her. Yeah. Um, yeah. And she hasn't been out at all with her except our house, her house. Uh, that's, that's been the only uh, movement about. So it's been, that's the silver lining for us. It's been terrible. Uh, I, I feel terrible for, and sorry for the people that have been affected, whether themselves or family loved ones. Um, we've we've been very fortunate here because Florida is uh, they had four thousand new cases, and we keep getting more and more new cases in our state. You know, we're twenty two million people; it's nearly the size of Australia, mm. uh, the state of Florida. But yeah, there's a lot more. I think the younger people aren't being probably as cautious or as careful as they. They could be because they're not as at risk as you know um, the, the older people that we should be looking
0: after. Yeah, exactly right. Now I mentioned that obviously you grew up in Ubiwa, uh, but one thing that um, I know in terms of researching uh, for the interview, and one thing I've known over the journey, you grew up playing on the Tropo tour. Now mm-hmm. I. The way I'd sort of look at it, especially with you guys, and I know there's a little smile coming to your face about the Tropo Tour, but is it also when you see the guys growing up nowadays and they're so uh, professional, They, I mean, they go to the gym, they do all these things that supposedly make them better for the game of golf. I nearly look at it, and it'd be interesting to get your opinion, I nearly look at it that you guys grew up more well-rounded because... You shared all that experience together, and in the end, you might have been one another's each-and-own psychologist, you know what I mean, where you got to have a beer together. You had a great time together, and it'd be, I don't know, how do you get that blend back into the game where you could actually really enjoy the game? I mean, because there, there is that part of the game that's such a great part of it. Yeah,
1: I, I think even in your sport, you can see some similarities with the way it used to be back in the 80s and 90s, or even you know go back another 50 years. Say. A mm-hmm. uh, bit more fun, a few more beers in the team room, uh, different types of training, you know, really, really good camaraderie within the team. Uh, and with us traveling on the Tropo Tour, we used to call it that because if you stayed on that tour for long enough, it would drive you Tropo. <laughs> and uh, some of the really good players that came out of there, Wayne Grady, uh, Peter Sr., um, Mike Harwood. Um, so Jeff Woodland, you know, so many really top players uh, that played there at, at that time in the 80s. It was really our, um, if you would, for me anyway, at my age when I was doing it from 18 to 22, it was our college years. It was our fun years. Be out with the boys, have a few beers, have a great time and uh, make a living playing professional golf while we were doing it. So, yeah, it was many great times. I'm sure you've heard lots of great stories about um the Sunshine Circuit in Queensland, and then we travel from state to state. Wherever the sun was, like we were just talking before about Sunshine Coast in June is really pleasant. So the Sunshine Tour was um, June, July, August in Queensland uh, because every other state it would have been too cold to play. So we travelled around Australia. May was uh, Western Australia. April was South Australia. March was Melbourne. Uh, and then the summer of golf of the big tournaments, which we missed so much, was October through the end of February. And we just played golf in Australia year-round. My, my brother used to look after my uh, expenses and he said, how do you make $10,000 a year and it costs you $15,000 to do it? <laughs> <laughs> how do you keep doing this? You know. Um, but fun times, great memories. Uh, and all of the boys when we get together now, I'm 60 this year and a few of the guys are a bit older than that. Uh, we still tell some some fun stories of those days.
0: And like, is I mean, the names that you rattled off, it, it was such a good grounding for Australian golf and the guys that come through. Like, what do you think, um, and especially in today's, there's so much pressure on today's kids coming up to play the game what do you think uh, actually made you guys successful by going through that together? Was it the shared experience or you could just push one another through the competition? What, what do you think it was that actually it, it, it produced so many great golfers out of that Tropo Tour? Yeah, it, the, the whole Australian Tour, all of those pro-ams through the middle of the year and then the
1: Australian summer of so many tournaments, we were constantly competing. And that's what I tell the young guys today, that... The depth is so much stronger and tougher now. And there's so many more athletes, guys your size, coming in and playing the game. It is really, really difficult to excel in golf right now because it is so deep. And you'd better be in love with the game and you'd better be really, really good if you're going to have any chance at all. And because one in 10,000 make it, and there's a lot just like you right behind waiting for a spot if you don't. And I think with us, we, although we were mates and comrades and having a great time together. We also drove each other. And I remember when Wayne won a tournament uh, in the US tour, I said, well, if Grades can do it, I can do it. You know, we've, we've been playing against each other for years. And then he nearly won the British Open in 89, should have won and he three-putted the 71st hole to, to lose. Yeah. And uh, Mark Kalkovecchia went on to win that playoff with he and Greg. And then he won the US PGA Championship and I'm like, well, sheesh. if Wayne can win that you know, PGA Championship, I can win and I went and won the Open the next year. We, we were constantly driving each other um, and comp- constantly competing all the time. And there was a bunch of guys, I, I can't mention them all, but we're all around that same age. Roger Mackay, Wayne Smith went up to Japan and played. Um, you know, Mike Clayton was over there in Europe with Graves and myself and um, there was, there was a whole bunch of guys in that era that we just pretty much played every day and we got better cause we played and played and played and at some tournaments. I mean, some years I'd play 40 tournaments a year, uh, on the circuit. We just played. That's what we did. Right. And, uh, anyway, it's, it's different times now, as I said, a lot of athletes playing it, the game's different. You got to be faster and stronger and fitter. Uh,
0: it's, um. Exciting to watch these guys, how far they can hit the ball now. Yeah, it is, is cr- getting crazy. We'll get to that later, how far they actually hit the ball. But when you had that gap really from just say the Tropo Tour and, and then I'll move into uh, the like the 84 open at St Andrews, where mm-hmm. was the moment in between then that Dean Baker Finch suddenly said, hang on, I can actually really play this game at the highest level. Like there was obviously that transition period or where was the moment for you where you suddenly thought, hang on, I can actually really play this game? I would say in
1: 1983, I started to play a little bit better. Um, The great Peter Thompson, five-time Open champion, sort of took me under his wing a a little bit uh, at that time. Well, a lot actually, but helped me a lot. Um, was really a, a great mentor in, in such a simple way. He was getting ready to go play the, the senior tour in the States and we played a lot of golf together. He nev- was never one to go to the range and hit thousands of balls. He'd, he'd wonder why after we'd finished a game of golf, why I'd want to go hit balls. And he said, you, you know, you played great today. What do you need to hit balls for? Oh, I just want to, you know, go hit 100 balls. Always had 100 balls in my shag bag. But he helped a lot and gave me a bit of confidence, helped my swing, kind of flattened off my plane a little bit. And I finished second in the Australian Open at Kingston Heath. And you can see that photo up behind me there. It's my favourite course in the world, Kingston Heath. And uh, it um, gave me that feeling that, hey, I could really do this. And then I went to New Zealand the next week and won the New Zealand Open. So I won $16,000 for coming second at the Aussie Open and $18,000 for winning the New Zealand Open. And I thought I was a millionaire. I <laughs> could afford to set a, a, a schedule to um, go and play in Europe the following year. So that, that was the turning point, that November of 1983. And, um, you know, I got some exemptions and uh, I was exempted at the British Open. I had 13 exemptions, 13 weeks in a row on the European t- tour in 84 I was going over to play so that was really the start of feeling like I could do it you know I won uh won the West Australian Open in in 84 in May before I left I lost in a playoff to Aussie Moore the following week in another big tournament at home so I was in good form leading into it and uh I think that was the moment where I realized hey I really can play this game I'm not just one of the boys from Oz now you know enjoying uh, playing golf, but not really thinking I could be really, really good at it. And I think that 84 Open uh, made me feel that way that, hey, I can really do this. Maybe I should, uh,
0: you know, set some new goals and and, and try a bit harder, focus a bit more. Yeah. And uh, it was was interesting. I actually spoke about this moment uh, with Mark Bosnich last week when I did the same interview. And, it's interesting, like, for, for people out there, it, just try and explain what it's like when you go into the... Like, everyone's played the game of golf, and in mm-hmm. Boz's case, he went to Wembley. But how, what's it like, You the, the final round of the British Open, you're standing on the first tee at St Andrews, you're playing mm-hmm. with a five-time British Open winner <laughs> in Tom Watson. Yeah. Like, what actually goes through your mind at that time that... It, it, at the, it really doesn't get any bigger, does it?
1: No, and, and it's funny, but at 23 years of age, uh, you know, Tom came up on the tee and he said, hi, I'm Tom Watson. I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, you really? Think so. <laughs> really? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I've been following you for a while. Um, and he said, this is the first tee of the final round of the British Open, and if you're not nervous, you're not human. And I think he was really just trying to make me feel you know just settle down young fella this is this is a big moment and we're here and we're gonna go you know do battle now. and you know I looked at my caddy and I put my hand out like hey I'm, I'm not shaking I'm feeling pretty good here but I obviously was nervous because I was like nine over par for the next 12 holes and and kind of shot myself in the foot but um, that experience alone was just amazing at, at that age 23 sounds really young in the 80s, to be in the final group of a major these days, there's a whole bunch of kids under the age of 23 that could could do it. You know, there's guys winning all the time. Look at Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas, and I could I could rattle on so many more. There's such great players. But for me, it was something that was the start of it all, and um, I didn't I didn't feel nervous, as in shaky or apprehensive, but I certainly got out of my comfort zone i spun it back in the water on the first hole uh got it up and down for five which was a feat in itself really when you think about that at the time hey this kid's just spun it back in the water and he goes and chips it the three foot and knocks and then for bogey but it i got out of my rhythm and i think that's you know nervousness in itself certainly inexperience apprehension and i birdied the last uh birdied a couple of the last three holes um, Tom would have liked my birdie on the last, he would have tied Seve. Yeah. But the whole day
0: was really the start of the next step in my career. It must have been, you're just going backwards on that, it must have been electric to be out on the course. when, mm. like, Were you guys in the direct group behind Seve? No, yes, we were, he was in the second to last group. He
1: was playing with Bernard Langer and I was in the last group with Tom. And uh, Tom hit it on the road on the seventy-first hole. It, I think he hit. He was trying to hit it in um, with one club too many. You know, he was trying to get it back to the pin instead of just hitting it on the front and having a forty-five foot putt up the hill. Yeah. So that that ruined him. And at that moment, um, I parred seventeen and walked while Tom was putting and walked over to the tee, which is sort of right on the back of seventeen green there at St Andrews, and I watched Seve. You know, with the navy blue sweater on as he knocked that putt in for birdie to win. And Tom had to holy second, I believe, to win then. But uh, yeah, we were right there watching it all. and um, No more uh, a satisfying experience playing in an Open Championship at St. Andrews, but to be in the final group at St. Andrews was something extra special.
0: And then, yeah, just quickly, you then did it again with Faldo in 1990. So in the end, you could basically see this little apprenticeship was being formed, that playing in the final group with Tom Watson and then playing with Faldo, that it was a pretty good apprenticeship that would help you moving forward. Yeah,
1: for sure. Actually, playing with Nick in the final group in 1990, uh, that experience helped me win the next year, for sure. I saw how Nick handled it. There's a lot of commotion on the course at St. Andrews because there's nowhere for everyone to go because it's in confines. You basically go out nine holes, come back in nine holes or thereabouts. So all of the media and all of the carts and all of the television people and whatever take off in front of you as we're walking down the hole. They have gone. So there's all this commotion and dust and noise and just so much going on. It's really hard to focus. Mm. I don't think Nick noticed one golf cart, one television person, one crowd member all day, the four hours we were out there. He barely knew I was there. And that experience of seeing how he went about winning, and in record fashion too, by the way, um, definitely gave me that little bit extra of, hey, I, I need to be that way, or this is how I
0: need to, to focus the next year. Yeah, and look, and then, so going into, we touched on it, going into 1991, Even going into that tournament, I know that uh, there's a few people that won a few shekels on Ian Baker Finch because you did have some pretty good form going in and you're stuck under the radar. But what was actually different in your mindset going into that week? Obviously, we spoke about the apprenticeship and you had the previous experiences playing in the final group. But what made it all click that week where you just had this different level of comfort and knowingness that you were going to play well and ultimately win it?
1: Um, I, I guess I had the confidence that I'd been playing very well for an extended period of time, a couple of years, uh, and especially through the summer, I just seemed to be uh, comfortable with my game, uh, comfortable with my swing. I didn't, I wasn't searching for anything. I'd lost in a playoff the week before, hence the people were saying, "Hey, we think Finchy's a pretty good forty-to-one shot next week." And as you said, a lot of guys, a lot of friends, a lot of caddies, friends of mine that that won some money on me. Um, I just wanted to go in and treat the tournament like any other tournament. If I could go in and just say, hey, I'm just here, I'm playing in another tournament, and I'm gonna keep playing the way I've been playing. And to me, that's the key of performing well in the cauldron. Mm -hmm. If you can just go to the grand final and play like you did in April and May, when it was early in the season, right? You could get in there and just say, I'm, I'm, I know the other guys are all jazzed up, but I'm, I'm going to be in control of my emotions and I'm going to be doing what I have to do. And I'm going to focus on my man here and, and that's what I'm going to do today. And I'm sure you all have all of these um, keys and, and things you need to do to perform at a high level in your sport. And for me, it was remain calm and relaxed. And if I could remain calm and relaxed and trust myself, I knew I could perform at a high enough level to win. And I did win a few times in my career. But I had to be in that zone or in that comfort level for myself to perform at that level. Uh, I had twice as many seconds as I had first. I was just happy to play well. I wasn't necessarily that guy that had to go win. I just wanted to play well. And it just so happened that in 91, I played well and I played better than everyone else and, and I won it. Um, but I was very, very comfortable, very, I had, um, you may see a, a picture here behind me. I had my wife, Jenny, with me. Uh, I had my good friend and, and uh, buddy, Stephen Ban, uh, from mm. Melbourne, staying with me, one of the great Australian coaches. And little Hayley and I played in the garden for a couple of hours before I went to the golf course. So she's, uh, she's the mother of the little one I showed you before. She, she, uh, helped me, uh, relax and, and be ready for play. And, quickly on that point of, of having had that that apprenticeship of the two times in the final group. I was comfortable in that position. I was with Mark O'Meara in the last group. I'd been there a couple of times in the last six years already. I didn't stress about that. I knew I was in control of my game and, and I just went out and played golf.
0: You sure did. Now, you know, to everyone out there, I've, over the journey, sent this <laughs> little... When I, As I mentioned, I was a golf nut when I was younger, but I've always kept this as a memento. But unfortunately, nowadays, Vinci, we don't have video recorders anymore. But this is a tape of the final round of the 91 British Open. And I think it was might have been unique as well. I've got a feeling that Sandy Roberts and Jack Newton might have been commentating as well. I'm not too sure. I haven't watched it in a while. Unfortunately, you can't get it on YouTube anymore, but if you could ever get it, for everyone out there, this man shot 29 on the front nine in the final group on the final day of the British Open and Finchie. It should have been 28. I remember that yeah, it was, it was nice probably on, on the last hole that you looked out on the last. So it was just amazing. I don't think the feet gets spoken about enough that you shot 29 in, on the final day of a major in the final group. Like... How how good was it? How rarefied air when you know that you're on because even I've watched that tape several times, and every shot that you hit, you I, you could tell straight away that you you absolutely flushed it because you just put the follow through on it and you knew. Hang on, this is actually going to be close again.
1: Yeah, it was uh, amazing, really, that I was as as relaxed and focused as I was, and I hit every shot right where I wanted it. Um, You know, I I don't need to go through each one with you, but it was four iron at the first, six iron at the second, wedge at the third, three iron at the fourth, eight iron at the fifth, seven iron at the sixth, seven (laughs) iron at the seventh, five iron at the eighth, eight iron at the ninth. I mean, I remember every shot vividly, as as we do when we do things at a high level, you know, in sport. Um, Mark O'Meara is a good buddy of mine, and he still tells the story at corporate days and stuff and says it was the best nine holes he had seen. And he, he... he remembers that it was so good. I hit the flag a couple of times. Yeah, I do remember that. Um, it was pretty pretty amazing. And then I kept looking at the leaderboard and saw how many I was in front. And I thought, man, I better not stuff it up from here because I won't be allowed back in Australia. If I don't win this today From with a five-shot lead, I'm screwed. So uh, I um, I just hit it in the fairway, hit it on the green, two-putted from then on in and um, played, played safe on the last for bogey to, to win by two. But anyway, that was, I knew I could do that. And I had f- stretches of when I did play really well when I trusted myself and and had days like that. But uh, I had had 29 on the front nine at St. Andrews the year before. So I actually had 29 a couple of times at the Open. And uh, I just seemed to get up for the Open more than any of the others. I just, it really meant a lot to me. Tomo helping me through my career in in early days, um, being an Open champion. Uh, Greg winning in 86 was something special uh, for the Aussie boys to to watch another Aussie win an Open championship there at Turnberry. So, yeah, it was just something special. I think if you ask all the Australians, they all want to win a major, and I'm not taking anything away from, say, David Graham or Wayne Grady or Steve (laughs) Elkington who won PGA championships. But I bet that all trade, that want to make a trophy for a claret jug. You know, just, I think the, the Open means a little bit more to the Aussies than, than the other Opens or the other majors. So, um, yeah, it was obviously made my life. I mean, Baker Finch, the Open champion, you know, it's pretty special.
0: This episode is brought to you by National Make Good Solutions, experts in taking your commercial property back to the day it was built at the end of your lease. Yeah, regardless of whatever happens moving forward, mate, you're always known yes. as the British Open champion. And my eyes, yeah. got 29 on the front on the final day. <laughs> <laughs> now, just one other thing that I thought was pretty cool. It's uh, I don't know whether you ever noticed in the AFL now that when the winning team, uh, <clears throat> what they'll do is they actually stay around at the MCG that night, and they're all going out into the centre of the MCG when it's pitch black now. You might have been ahead of your time because I think you went back to the 18th green later that night. That must yep. have been pretty special to go back on the golf course at around midnight. I gather you might have had a few sherbets underneath the belt and just, <laughs> just, just to be able to sit there with the claret jug, I think it was Jenny and Steve Bann and just, yep. just sit around and tell some stories about the journey. Yeah, it was Jenny and Steve Bann and we went back. Um,
1: uh, it was mm, would have been at least 11 o'clock at night, close to midnight. And uh, I had the claret jug with me, so when the guard came out and said, "Sorry, you can't come in," I said, "Hey, uh, you know, I just want to go out on the last green. This is I won this today." And the guy said, "Yes, come on through, Mr. Baker." <laughs> so ben, ben, and I walked back down to where I would played my second shot from, had a look in the long grass there on the left side of the fairway, and then and then walked the hole back. Um, yeah, good, good times, good fun. Had, had had a couple of fosters and a couple of nice glasses <laughs> of Aussie Shiraz, and we'd we'd definitely um, done some damage out of the jug that night. But it wasn't a raucous party or anything. It was more, a uh, how can I say, just a just an elated feeling of hey, I've finally
0: done what I set out to do. Yeah, yeah that's that's what it's really all about. Yeah, hundred percent. Now, um. Now, knowing what you know now, obviously after that, um, I mean, you went through you know, I'm mean, a bit of a rough patch. What would you have done different with the experience and knowledge that you know now? I know that there were different things that happened. There were rumours about um, where you try and hit the ball further and things like that. But knowing all the experience you've got now, if you could look back and say, OK, how would I approach differently that period post after the British Open?
1: Um. I think I put too much pressure on myself to play like the British Open champion every day I played. Yeah. Instead of just being me, um, I'd been a top 50, 30, 20 times player in the world for a long while. And I jumped up into the top 10 with the Open win. And I felt like I wanted to be number one or I could be, or I should be, or I should win more majors. And I just put too much pressure on myself I finished second at the Players the next year. I was sixth or seventh at the Masters. I played well again at the Open. I played well really until 93, start of 94. And then I thought, hey, if I'm going to really perform and, and get that great winning feeling back, I've got to learn to hit the ball further. It was an interesting time in the early 90s, just quickly. There was graphite shafts. There was cavity-back irons. There was metal heads. There was... um. A lot of change, the, the uh, balada ball went to an elastomer cover and then eventually a plastic cover. Uh, there was a lot of change. And I was with a, a company called Daiwa, which is a Japanese based company and they wanted me to try everything new. So every time something new came out, I was trying something different. And I was using graphite shafts and then I had a set of cavity back irons with graphite shafts and they went two times as far as the other ones. And then I changed ball company, which I probably shouldn't have done at the time, but it was a lot of change. So there wasn't that consistency of playing golf every day with your mates, just going out and playing and competing and being who I was and what I did. Um, And I kind of lost my way. And then I tried to hit the ball further. And over the Christmas of 93, start of 94, uh, I tried to flatten the plan of my swing out a little bit to hit the ball with more of a draw. And I lost that ability of being able to hit the fade every time. And, uh, I'd just tweak one every once in a while and it became a mental issue and then by the end of 95 i'd missed 15 cuts in a row uh, i then missed the first 11 in 96 to the british open and if i had a chance to make the cut i'd make seven up the last if i played well in the pro-am i'd hit it out of bounds off the first on thursday i mean i just i couldn't get out of my own way and mm. i think to answer your question specifically i would say don't change a thing Keep doing what you do. Realise that when you play really, really well, that's when you play really, really well. You're not supposed to play like that every day. I'm not Tiger Woods. I'm not Rory McIlroy. I'm I'm Ian Baker Finch. I'm not. I'm not really supposed to be that guy. I was just happy being who I was. So that would be as a 60 year old now. I would look back on that and say I've learnt. I would have got myself fit. I would have stayed with my same coach my same caddy um same club company all of the stuff that most people change when things change like that big time in their life winning a major i'd say just keep doing what you're doing and uh stay in your own little comfort zone so unfortunately uh i didn't do that and i couldn't deal well with where i was you know it was embarrassing i wasn't angry I, I didn't come home and kick the cat you know i still had a great life at home two little girls and i just decided that hey i need to do something else to you know feel good about myself because it certainly wasn't golf for a couple of years yeah even though i loved the game you know I, i'd go back to the club and play saturday morning in the men's comp when i got back from missing a cut you know i didn't i didn't lose that love of the game i just lost the ability to focus on the pressure
0: yeah, hundred percent. Where did you where did you find you? I know a lot of people out there might be doing it a little bit tough at the moment, but I thought it'd be a good question, especially from someone like you that's so positive. Where where did you find your resilience from, and what and what what were the things that you that you did to actually keep you going? You know, what I mean, because it was such a tough period for you. Yeah,
1: well, you reach back to the people that you have around you, and you have good people around you, certainly. And my wife Jenny, who we've been travelling together since 1984. Um, the two little girls, Haley and Laura, I had at home, they, they were certainly, uh, they didn't know that I wasn't playing well, or, or did they care? No, you know, I was, was dad, obviously. So having the, um, I had good people around. I, I went and worked with Gary Edwin on my swing at, at last half of 86 and, and start of 87 to try and figure a few things out. I had some injuries that I had to step away from the game for about three or four months. So I had, I, I kind of uh, got close with all of the guys in the television business because I went and did all the television in Australia at the end of that year. And that was good. It was like getting another family. And that was really the time when I was seeing how there is more to life, obviously my own family, but I could do something else. And, and that was really the time, that last half of 1996, where I realized... Um, you know, I, I can do something else. I could focus my energy and my, my uh, desire towards something different. It didn't, didn't always have to be, uh, you know, a tour player. But it's, it's tricky because it's a hard thing. When, when you're playing well, you think you're going to play well forever. You know, we, as athletes, you, you feel like we're bulletproof, right? And um, I think in other sports where you get to an age where you can't compete just because your body's been beaten up, you realise that, hey, I get to 35, or if I'm really, really lucky, maybe 40. But in golf, we think we can play forever. You know, you, you just you see these guys, like Bernhard Langer, he's 63, still making cuts on the on the PGA Tour. So anyway, it was a a difficult time, 96, 97, but I had good people around, and I just focused my energy in a different direction.
0: Yeah, 100%. Now, um, we did touch on it before it's probably a good segue I asked you to come up with what would be one of your favorite photos that means a lot to you now that we you did show me the the one that before I know there was uh, the Haley. I think it was Haley you said her daughter but there's the yeah. other one. I think of you and Haley at the British Open I think is is what you've shown yeah. your favorite photo. I got
1: I got that one there that would be my my favorite photo of uh when I won the Open in 91, with little Hayley looking in the claret jug. Um, I've got another one behind me there with Jenny, who was six months pregnant with Laura. Uh, means a lot to me. Uh, another one there, I don't know if you can really quite see it, but Jenny with me when I won the Aussie Masters in, in 88, I've got the Masters trophy there. Um, I've got some great photos on my phone of, with Peter Thompson and uh, some lovely photos on the wall. Of uh, some great British Open venues that I used to always study, and uh, I've kept, you know, I've got another wall of them in another area of all of the great British Open venues. So yeah, I've I've always, um, uh, I'm a golf nut like you, Corey. I still still love my golf, mate. I still still play four or five days a week and uh, play had a game today, shot one under par at my local course. So.
0: just lots of great memories. It's been a good life. Now speaking of uh, great memories, um, there is the U- U.S. Masters when Adam Scotland. Now I did when we, mm-hmm. I had the I did have the pleasure of interviewing you and Peter Senior. I think it was down in Portsy. It was after a seniors event down there. Yep. And again, because I watched the U.S. Masters, uh, I mean it's it's like the tournament that everyone loves. I did ask you the question about when Adam Scott won the U.S. Masters, Jim Nance threw to you uh, because you were actually, for those that don't know, um, Finchie was down on the next hole ready to go. And by the way, and you can, I'll let you run off of the story. There's no way they would have played another hole. It was that dark. (laughs) I think the rule, the rule that went up wasn't from the 20,000 Australians that were around the green (laughs) and millions around the world. I think the roar was from Augusta National itself, that we didn't have to come back on Monday. But just take us through how special a moment it was for you to be an Aussie, and we finally got the monkey off our back at Augusta.
1: Yeah, ex- exactly. I mean, uh, 2013, we'd had so many chances three or four years leading into it. Um, Stuart Appleby led at one point. I think it was '09. Uh, we had Jason Day, Jeff Ogilvy, Adam Scott another time, all finished in the top five. I think it might have been a couple of years before that. Jason Day again had a chance. So we had Mark Leishman uh, was right there with Scotty in that in that group. So when he held that putt on 18, you know, it was we thought it was all over, but we had to go to those extra holes. And Jim Nance threw it to me then, and I had a bit of a chance to to say a little bit about Adam and you know, how he's beloved at home and what have you and how we all are just so rooting for an Australian to put that green jacket on finally after the years of Greg and us tearing our hair out, you know, in uh, in honour of him. Jeez, how many times did he have a chance?
0: But it's anyway... Just on that, it, it, picture, sorry. Yeah. So when, you know when Scotty uh, hold that putt on 18... Yes. Do you then nearly turn into a fan like the rest of us? Because for me, it's... It's nearly close to my favourite Australian sports moment of all time for two reasons. Mm -hmm. The fact that at that point we thought he'd won the US Masters and and Scotty's reaction, but also the reaction of Mark Leishman behind him with the little... Yes, exactly. How hard is it for you to maintain to go, hey, I'm meant to be at work here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it was fortunately...
1: I was sitting down on Amen Corner, as you know, and it was cold and wet and been raining, sort of drizzling all afternoon. um, They said, hang in there Finchie, hang in there Finchie, we'll come to you, (laughs) because the Aussies are doing well. You know, okay, I'm hanging in, hanging in, I'm freezing my ass off here. So I had a couple of chances and I was really, as you say, I was a fan, I was emotional. And then when they went down and he hit that great shot into 10, uh, another great sporting moment there when they both went thumbs up to each other, you know, uh, that I thought that was was very, very, it um, was unique. It, that was very special, I thought, from Angel Cabrera, who had won it in 09, by the way, so he, he already had a green jacket. So we all wanted it so much. You can't really uh, root for somebody, but it was so obvious that I was... I just sort of forgot about that part of it because I think everyone kind of was. They no one was rooting against Arnel Cabrera, and and he showed that sportsmanship and the man he is, which was cool. But everyone was rooting for Adam because he's such a great guy, mm. and we've seen that over this pandemic, what he's been doing at home on the sunny coast, playing with people, and you know, and giving back. So we all know that. But to finally get that green jacket, and and Jim Nance throws it to me, and and he says. Ian, you've got to be really proud there, and I'm <laughs> fighting back the tears, and I still choke up a bit about it now, as you know I did that day with you. And I said, from down under to on top of the world, Jim. Yeah? And that was probably the, the best thing. Um, it was the only thing I could say, basically. I, I think I just left it at that, because that's exactly how we all felt, right? It was from down under to on top of the world, because that's how you feel when you win a major. But to finally be the first Aussie to win the green jacket
0: and to win the Masters was...
1: Uh, extra, extra special.
0: Yeah, you could tell when, uh, as I said to you, you could tell that when Jim Nance through to you, I think yeah. it nearly caught you off guard a bit. But, I mean, kudos yeah. to, to come up with such a great line. <laughs> when, he's, when you're down on, on 11 and it's raining and it's cold and you're sitting there probably one out and you're wanting to get up back up to where the tent is see what's <laughs> going on. It, it was... Um... Jim Nance and I
1: had talked earlier that day about how great it would be if Adam could win or if one of the Aussie boys could win. He was asking me about Mark Leishman. And he had coined over the years so many great lines. And that um, uh, from from down under really came from Jim because we don't sort of see ourselves that way, do we? It's almost like what other people talk about us. You know, we come from the land down under. Um, so it was was really um, it, that that thought that image really came from Jim at that time. We saying that, yeah, it did. It was a pretty yeah. special moment for me too. I, I was I was very emotional. And when Jason Day won in at Whistling Straits, winning the PGA, I had the chance to call that one as well, and was very emotional at that time because you just know what these young guys go through to win. Uh, it's not easy. There's there's a lot of uh, lot of money at the end that people
0: tend to focus on
1: but the effort beforehand is what it's all about
0: and that that was going to be my, my second last question you you must be incredibly proud of like all our Aussie golfers and the way that they carry themselves and the, and the way that they represent and it's just really it's it's probably started from guys like yourself Greg Norman and and seeing all this crop come yeah. through, you must be incredibly proud that you get to call a lot of our guys in the tower for CBS. Yeah, I'm very, very lucky. I'm blessed because over those years that I've been doing this
1: now, since 1996, I started working for Australia and then came over here and I've been doing it, she's, 25 years. Jeff Ogilvy won a major, another fine example of a you know, good Aussie player and a, and a hard worker. And then all of those guys that have won majors and won this year, we've had four winners. Mark Leishman, Cam Smith uh, along there um, as well as, as good Aussies that could definitely win major championships coming up. And I don't see them all the time because I'm only out at half the events, but I always stay in touch. I texted Cam Percy and Cameron Davis today to wish them well in this tournament this week. They got in as ultimates. So I, I stay in touch and uh, good friends with with Allenby and Appleby over the years as well. I had dinner with Stewie the other night. He's a he's a trip but yeah it's it's been a good journey so I had had what I thought was a good career as a golfer but it's been even more fun and more memorable uh in this in the second half of, of what's been
0: going on and uh i I'll, I'll get to our final question and then we'll wrap it up I know that you'd uh it's the whole uh, interview series that we're doing it's actually called fork in the road now I was going to warn you there is a little bit of a story behind why I did come up with Fork in the Road other than it's every athlete has their Fork in the Road moment but as you can see Finch I'm not going to be a hand model anytime soon so that's (laughs) the logo for the Fork in the Road so your Fork in the Road moment what would it what would it be that your career or life could have gone either way or you just yeah what's your Fork in the Road moment where it it turned out better for you? Well I, I would say
1: And I tweeted this to you today. The great Yogi Berra, who's a famous baseball guy, and just so coined so many great comments. He said, uh, when you come to a fork in the road, take it. And I didn't initially when I had played poorly at the British Open in 96, but I did some TV and the guy said, hey, you, you can do this. This is not bad. If you don't come back to playing, you could do some television. And then I tried to play in 97 at... Uh, when Justin Leonard won at Troon and I played so poorly, I shot 20 over par in the first round and, and withdrew. And that was when um, I was basically crying on the floor in the locker room saying, I've got to go do something else, I can't keep doing this. Mm-hmm. So I would say that was when I tried for a year to come back to to do it the way I knew I could. And I realized then at Troon in 97 that I couldn't. And that was really the, the fork in the road, I guess.
0: Yeah. it's. Uh, i tell you what, I'm going to run with that one, Finch. It's such a great quote. If you come to the fork in the road, take it. I think there would be a lot of people out there that sometimes wonder which way you're going to go. You know what? Just, just Yes. Such such great advice. But look, it's been an absolute privilege to sit down you and have a chat to you. Um, I think you know over the journey I've been a massive fan and I'm, I'm still going to find a way to convert this tape, mate. I've got to go get... <laughs> For those golfers out there, it's if you can somehow track it down to be able to see one of our own shoot one of the great rounds in major championship history and he's an Open champion. But as I said before, he's also an even better bloke and it's uh, been a privilege to sit down with you Finchie and talk about your career and I'm hoping that everyone out there has learned a lot and uh, we look forward to seeing you all again soon. Thanks very much, Corey. See you back home soon, mate. Will do, mate.